This is Conducting Business. I'm Jeff Spurgeon, sitting in today for Naomi Lewin. Now, we've all had moments when our minds have wandered in a classical music concert. A Wagner opera, for instance, a Bruckner symphony, maybe even a long Mozart recitative. Some people, I have heard it said, have even dozed off in concerts. But we're being told now that perhaps we shouldn't beat ourselves up when our thoughts drift to a grocery list or an email we forgot to send earlier in the day. As it turns out, boredom in the concert hall, boredom in the concert hall may be a good thing. We have three views on this today, starting with John Crace, a features writer for The Guardian newspaper in London. You recently wrote a widely discussed article, John, about the importance, the importance of being bored. It sounds undesirable and, frankly, just completely contrary. Why is it important to be bored at a concert? Well, the starting point was that the Royal Opera over in London are putting on a new production of Parsifal, which is an opera I've seen three or four times. And every time I see it, there are about an hour and a half of absolutely sublime music, which makes it all worthwhile. And then there are sort of bits, especially in the second act, when my mind starts to wander. And I, so the starting point was really, what's, what is the purpose? Is it a failure in me? Is it a failure in the composition? Or is it a failure in performance? I don't want to go too far with what you said, John, but I believe the words that you used in describing Wagner were the words insufferably tedious, which <laughs> doesn't put too fine a point on it. Well, what is your conclusion? Is it your fault? Is it Wagner's fault? Is it the performer's fault? What do you think? Well, I think it could be any, but I do think in in terms of Wagner, it's probably his fault. Um, <laughs> I think he wasn't a man prone to self-editing. And, um, you know, he expected his audiences to sort of come along for the ride with him. And I don't think audiences are always prepared to do that. That's, um, that's wonderful, John. And I can hear the Wagner defenders' rifles being cocked, even as you said those words. Let's take another look at this uh, with Ben Finan, editor-in-chief of the Classical Music Magazine. Listen, Ben, what do you say to John Crace? Uh, well, I recently saw... Saw Jonas Kaufmann at the Met in Parsifal. It was it was fantastic. Certainly, there are periods where the mind wanders off. I think it's a, there's a very important distinction to be made here between mind wandering and actual boredom uh, itself. I, I think that the mind wandering off is a good thing. I think there's only so much musical material that uh, a listener can can keep track of in his or her head, and just because your your thoughts drift away a bit, I wouldn't equate that with boredom, per se. You um, recently interviewed Mark Morris, Ben, and he had some insights on, on boring mo- moments in Mozart. And Mozart is a composer whom Mark Morris just loves. So what was he saying about boring parts in what is one of his favorite composers, clearly? Well, Mark was sort of taking a relativist approach, which is to say that there are exciting parts, and by comparison to those exciting moments in, in music, other moments are going to be boring. But that in a way, those boring moments, those parts of the music that don't stay with you or, or that you can't grasp onto the way you can a, a theme that you're waiting to, uh, to hear return, they're essential in uh, actually appreciating the finer moments of the music. And do you agree with that position? Is that how you feel too? Is there music that makes you d- drift off? Is it particular composers you find time after time? Look, I, I understand what what Morris is saying about Mozart, and certainly Mozart recitative is, uh, 
especially in, in our day and age, when you're hearing it, when you're watching it live on stage, it can be very tedious and quite comical. But then, of course, there is, there is this great payoff when you get to the aria. But one thing I, I would say is that before I would go attacking the rep, per se, I would first take a look at the performance. I've heard a number of Figaro's, and some are more compelling than others. And I think it's incumbent upon the singers to establish good chemistry on stage for those recitatives. It's incumbent upon the, the conductor to keep things moving. And when that happens, I'm not dozing off. I'm not looking at, at people in the audience. I'm not checking my watch because I'm engaged in the story itself. That's Ben Finan. Now, our third guest on this edition of WQXR's Conducting Business is Jeremy Pound, deputy editor of BBC Music Magazine, joining us from the offices of the magazine in Bristol, England. Jeremy, a couple of years ago, uh, the magazine asked 10 leading classical music critics to name their top boredom inducers. You published the list. What were the common threads in those responses? Uh, the common thread there was, <laughs> interestingly, there was no common thread, which I think is, is kind of shows that one man's meat really is another man's poison. I think one or two notable ones, you bringing up Wagner, is that um, Michael White, who's a regular writer for the Daily Telegraph here in England, um, had actually recently released a slim book about Wagner. He himself actually admitted that Tristan and his older um, has its longers, um, and he, he of all people would think would be defending Wagner. And actually, it's Tristan rather than Parsifal, which is the opera I've particularly heard cited as being kind of the, the longest and most boring one. I think it's partly due to the second act and third acts, where very little actually happens. Um, and if you don't kind of find yourself falling into Wagner's wonderful sound world, your mind can start to wander. However, there were one or two other critics who said that um, they love Wagner, and instead we got um, mentions of Vivaldi, we got Bruckner's Seventh Symphony, we got Puccini. It was, it was a very fascinating kind of broad mix of composers, eras, a slight kind of leaning towards opera. Maybe operas are the, the kind of real culprits because people feel that they, they have to be concentrating opera because something's going on on the stage and that, that with a kind of symphony you kind of feel less guilty about switching off, whereas in opera you always feel that you might be missing a little part of the action. So maybe there's this guilt association with opera. Well, and I would understand that operas would come in for criticisms. Operas and Bruckner and and Wagner, because they are long-form works. But are there short pieces that people cited as being boring, too? Uh, not particularly. They all largely went for the longer ones. I guess the shortest ones we had were Prokofiev's Scythian Suite, which is only about 20 minutes long. Um, that's, that's about the shortest one we had. Um, I guess that's uh, Vivaldi's glory isn't, isn't huge. But by and large, they were your sort of two- to three-hour epics, which kind of came in for, for criticism. That does demand some concentration. Well, what sort of response did you get from readers? Readers, um, by and large, agreed with our critics. And also, when I'm doing sort of conversations about this same subject in the pub, which you tend to do when, when you're in our business, you kind of have a couple of beers and you chat to your, chat to your mates afterwards. The longer Wagner operas seem to be the real sort of culprit for, for boring people. And I think the trouble is that the wonderful thing about Wagner is that he's, I think it's Rossini who said that he had these wonderful moments, but awful quarter hours. And that's the trouble, isn't it? You want to stick around with Wagner because there's so much good stuff in there but you do have to sit through the drearier stuff in between and that's the whole problem isn't it because if his music was just dull per se you wouldn't stick the duller bits but because you do get these wonderful moments elsewhere which makes you actually enjoy the boring bits as well well that's jeremy pound of uh, bbc music magazine who is giving a wonderful wonderful promotion for wagner to john crace the writer from the guardian who we understand is headed off very shortly to a performance of parsifal you must be really really looking forward to it now john 
Believe it or not, I don't need converting to Wagner. I've been going to Wagner and indeed to other opera for about 30 years now, um, and it's a, it's a passion. But it was just to raise this sort of unmentionable, really, which is that there are in opera these longueurs. And I think you're right to make the dis- distinction between sort of drifting off into a sort of different sort of state of consciousness because I think that is part of the music and part of the experience but I, I would distinguish between that and bits that are just a bit dull and I think we have to admit a lot of people do find some of these bits dull and I think also there's a kind of problem here I mean there's two other issues one of which is that I mean opera is very difficult especially Wagner to cut because it's sort of composed through no one would dream of performing, or very rarely performing, Hamlet at five hours, which it was written in the original. I mean, most performances knock at least an hour and a half, sometimes two hours off that. And, you know, there is no real sense of anybody's being irreverent to Shakespeare by doing it. But there is a feeling, I think, in opera that somehow there is an irreverence attached if every note of every bar is not included. Well, Wagner was certainly the control freak of the classical music world. He wrote his own libretti and built his own theater. He was not going to let it be done any way other than his, and that must oh, have... Oh, yeah, and I mean, at Parsifal, he didn't even want it performed outside by Royce. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you're, you're going to a travesty tonight in <laughs> where you are tonight. Yeah. It's a horror what's being done tonight. Yeah. How do you and prepare, I... John, for, a, for an evening of Wagner? Because you're going at the end of a workday... So, and you're gearing up what for many people is another work day in itself, sitting through a performance of Parsifal. How do you get yourself geared up for the experience? A lot of coffee to start. <laughs> An overnight bag, some box lunches. Um, I'm just sort of, I hope I don't doze off. I mean, I am one of those people that have dozed off in the past. I mean, I think there's the, uh, the, the other point that it's worth making is that we're all so much more familiar with these operas now, thanks to radio, CD, and sort of other forms of medium. I mean, when Parsifal was written, you would probably only go to one performance in a lifetime, maybe two. So there was much more of a sort of sense of occasion, a sense of ceremony, and also a sense of surprise. But now we all know the music so well, so we kind of know where the longers are. So I I think that sort of a sort of vaguely worked to the composer's disadvantage. John Crace speaking. He's a features writer for The Guardian newspaper in London, and he's the one who started this whole discussion that we're continuing in this edition of WQXR's Conducting Business on drifting off or even dozing off in classical music performances. Uh, Ben Finan, editor-in-chief of Listen magazine, I wonder what you find in your experiences being of a younger generation as John Crace just said, this music was written in an entirely different time. The sensibilities of the world now are much shorter. If you make a video that's over two minutes on YouTube, <laughs> I don't care how many millions of views it gets. I wonder how many of those views go all the way through the two minutes. So is classical music just this odd thing that makes you stop and listen through? No wonder we're bored, you might argue. Right. Well, I mean, but that's that's one of the wonderful things, isn't it? you touched on something with these YouTube videos and, and populating uh, what, what we're starting to call editorial content now. Uh, and as, uh, as the editor of, a, of a, a print quarterly, I can certainly uh, sympathize. I think 
though John has put his finger on something with Wagner, which is to say that all of Wagner's operas are, in fact, director's cuts. There, <laughs> no, no, no notes were spared. Well described. But if we look at opera and ballet as niches, in a way, of classical music, insofar as they, they have visuals to go with them. That may, in fact, you know, have a lot to do with their popularity. Oh, what an axe of judgment you're putting on our generation. <laughs> because it's, it's, it's something to look at. There is, there is visual stimulation. Uh, whereas I think people going to a Bruckner symphony, they know what they're in for. It's a, it's a hardened crowd. They're there <laughs> to experience music uh, only for music's sake. Or has been said in New York, and Jeremy and John, I don't know if you know this joke, but there is a, a highway that runs through New York City and around the city. It's called the Bruckner Expressway. The name has no relation to the composer. But people have said, you know what the Bruckner Expressway is, don't you? It's a highway that wanders around for a very long time and goes nowhere. <laughs> and And... It's quite something to put modern transportation and a classical music composer into the same box, but somehow it's been done in that, in that particular um, comment. Bruckner gets criticized for being deliberate. Mahler, on the other hand, is very popular. Jeremy Pound, any explanation for the difference between these two guys? They both are of somewhat the same era, and they both think musically in very long forms. They do. Interesting, I mean, Mahler is a lot more showy than Bruckner. You get a lot more whistles and bells in Mahler than you do in, in Bruckner, which probably helps, is that Mahler uses these vast orchestras with instruments which hadn't been, hadn't been used before. He, he stretches the concept of the symphony far more than Bruckner did. I mean, all of Bruckner's symphonies are, are fairly standardly set out. You get your four movements, they're all orchestral, there's no choir. Whereas in Mahler, you move from one symphony to the next, and it's a completely different kettle of fish, completely different ball game from one to the next. You have the fourth symphony, you have a soprano soloist. The third symphony, symphony you've had a, a large chorus and a soprano soloist and it's in six movements by the time you get to the seventh symphony you've got the nacht music section which is kind of this little three movements of kind of which kind of portray drifting through the night and you end up with this large rondo and then you get to the eighth symphony which has just got two movements an enormous choir called the symphony of a thousand it's something completely different again he gets there's a lot more sort of going on in Mahler. it's a lot more different but actually i'd make the same criticism of one of Mahler's most popular symphonies and one of Bruckner's most popular symphonies, and that is Bruckner's seventh and Mahler's eighth, which are two of my own most boring works, is that they both have these enormous, brilliant, really fascinating starts, which really grab your attention. And then after that, you find yourself drifting off because nothing quite reaches the same level as the beginning. When you said that, Jeremy, uh, Ben raised an eyebrow and his <laughs> Good. mouth was turned slightly down. I think, Ben, that you feel in a contrary manner to Mr. Pound. I wouldn't say contrary, but I wanted to question this whole notion of boring music. I'm not sure I can get on board uh, with this idea that these works, which, are, which find themselves in the, in the repertoire after uh, sometimes hundreds of years, that we can consider them boring. And, and it seems to me that the list uh, that was given earlier about what constitutes a boring work is so subjective that I really think it, if it's so individual to each listener, it may be hard to, to speak about boredom in music on, on a more global level. John Crace, any reaction? Well, I think that, I mean, I think 
That's absolutely right. I mean, I think that the, there is a possibility that the bits that you find boring change over time in the course of a lifetime. I mean, one of the people that I talked to, uh, Julian Barnes, the novelist, said that when he was a younger man, the slow movements of uh, symphonies, he used to sort of shuffle his way through and find himself sort of easily distracted but now that he's sort of late middle age he finds the slow movements are the ones that really engage him and the sort of scherzos he can take or leave very frequently so i i do think the concept does vary i like but something i like something you said there john though which is that the bits change over the course of your lifetime which to me shows a maturity that develops on the part of a listener as, as we, we hear more adagios and as, uh, as we get older and more terrible things have happened to us <laughs> over the course of our <laughs> lives, perhaps we, we come to empathize more with these long, slow movements. Whereas as a, uh, a listener in our 20s or, or in our teens, it, it doesn't seem to, uh, to hold the weight. I also I kind of think that uh, a symphony performance is a visual performance as well as a sound one. You were talking about sort of opera and ballet as yeah. having these kind of added. For me, I wouldn't listen to a Mahler symphony on CD because it is just two-dimensional, and I kind of drift off. I recently went to see Mahler's Seventh, conducted by Gustavo Dudamel, and that was a completely immersive experience. It was every bit as sort of three-dimensional as an opera and I got so much more out of it by being there than I, do, I would have done on the CD. Thank you, can John Grace. Take, yes, Jeremy, please come in. Can I just take you back in. to the, what you were saying about developing with, with kind of time, your kind of perceptions develop as you get older. Yeah, go ahead, a Jeremy. a very different perspective on this. So when I was younger, I was a, a chorister um, at an Oxford college, and our staple fare was the choral works of Talis and Bird and Taverner at the time. Uh, yeah, I those don't were... unfold very rapidly now, do they? You're right. <laughs> and I thought at the time that these were sort of the world's dreariest pieces. They don't actually do an awful lot, of your, especially if you're singing the top line. From now I'm older, that's half the beauty is that I kind of, you listen to them, you kind of realize what's going on in the counterpoint. And I found them absolutely fascinating. I found them riveting. And so what was boring to me kind of 20 years ago, now I absolutely adore. And I think there is this element of that you do sort of, as your taste develops, you kind of actually start to enjoy these slower, longer, these bits which are a little bit more involved, maybe take a little bit more concentration. Yes, I think that, uh, that we agree that audiences mature and change over time, and that changes the pieces that they find um, engaging. I think it's also interesting to make the point that until, what, 1920? Nobody who was composing classical music conceived of it uh, as, as something to be experienced in any manner other than in the room where the musicians were making the music at the time. So we do have another en entire dimension of perceiving musical performances in the last hundred years that before that nobody had even conceived. What, gentlemen, is the lesson for orchestras and performing group programmers now? Keep listening and keep trying and keep winning converts to, to new composers. Don't be afraid. If you're doing programming, if you're directing an orchestra, if you believe in a piece, by all means, put it on the program. The thoughts of Ben Finan, editor-in-chief of Listen Magazine. Jeremy Pound, John Crace, uh, amplifications on Ben's points? My, um, my, my angle would be that, um, that when you read the press, there's a tendency in the press to eulogize the longest 
um, longest works, the most grand works, more than other works. And as a result, I think that they tend to get hyped up and raise people's expectations. So your Tristans, mm. your Ring Cycles, your Malerates, and your Bruckner Symphonies will kind of get hyped up in the press more than other works and maybe create a level of over-expectation in some listeners. And I think it's important to actually bring a similar attitude to all works and bear, kind of program your season so you've got the shorter stuff, the longer stuff. And don't always expect this overwhelming response to the longer works. As as both um, John and Ben have said, it's down to the performers to really bring these works live. And they're not going to do the work for you just by themselves unless you've got phenomenal performers as well. And so do expect this negative re- reaction occasion. Don't take it to heart. John Crace, thoughts? I would pretty much go along with that. I mean, my, my one sort of guideline would be for as a kind of uh, an audience member is if you are finding a work a little dull in places, you're sort of experiencing the longer, don't necessarily blame yourself. It isn't necessarily your fault, but try and kind of understand it for what it is. I think, you know, one of the reasons why... I mean, for me, the, the last bit, the Lieberstadt of Tristan Isolde was one of the greatest pieces of music ever written, but it probably wouldn't feel quite so great if you hadn't had to experience the previous four and three-quarter hours. <laughs> um, so it's a bit like life, really. There's long, long, tedious bits with a few very memorable bits. It's interesting, and uh, I, I was thinking about this in preparing for this conversation. I had a conversation with an opera director a few years ago who said that his definition of opera was that it's life with the boring parts left out. <laughs> and yet and yet, we've talked about a fair number of boring parts in operas. One other thing we've, we've overlooked, perhaps not without accident in this conversation, is the responsibility of the listener. Does the listener have any responsibility to focus, to open a mind to something that might be unfamiliar? Do we need to help audiences understand how to go to a concert. It's not a television show. You can't get up and get a sandwich when when things aren't interesting. Stick with it. See if you can find the reward at the end. I think that's slightly unfair myself. I mean, I, I understand where you're coming from, but I mean, in terms of opera, I think most audiences are fairly self-selecting. Opera is not a cheap night out, and so very few people are likely to go to an opera just sort of on a whim. It's not like going to the movies where it's sort of like, come on, whatever. People are quite selective about what operas they go to. And yes, I mean, the more you put into it as an, an audience member, the more you'll get out of it. But I don't think that sort of audiences, you know, are that naive on the whole. All right. Thank you, John Crace. Any uh, pushback uh, for the interlocutor from our other panelists? Well, my, my suggestion is that when I go to a concert and an opera, I always make a conscious decision to sit right at the front of my seat stick my elbows kind of on my knees and lean forward and really make sure that I'm actually focused on the action and don't go into this sort of comfort zone of lying back in the seat and letting it drift over me. And it might just be as I might be kidding myself here, but I find that helps me to concentrate on it just that little bit more. And that actually kind of keeps my mind on the action. And find I've never slept at a concert. It does tend to work as as an entertainment. That's a wonderful suggestion, Jeremy. And my only fear would be that if I were to sit in that position at a concert and fall asleep, I would be drooling more visibly (laughs) um, than I might otherwise. Ben Finan, any thoughts? You'd be drooling on the floor. (laughs) That's right. Good point. Ben Finan, any thoughts? I'm sorry, Jeff. What was the question I was drifting <laughs> off? <laughs> no, um, I, I hear what's being said about uh, 
being an active listener, being an inactive listener, I should just say that about 10 years ago, I, I took a, a classical novice friend of mine, Patrick, to a uh, Bruckner Symphony at Carnegie. And he was very much a classical novice. Afterward, I asked him, so what did you think? Did, did, how did you enjoy it? And he said to me, dude, my mind kept thinking these crazy thoughts. And you know what? I think that's a perfectly valid reaction, and I think that's perfectly okay. As long as he's not, you know, writing for the Times the next day, uh, th that of course would would require a bit more engagement. He enjoyed it. He had a great experience. He he thought fantastical thoughts that he wouldn't have otherwise. Gentlemen, we thank all three of you. As John Crace, features writer for The Guardian, who started this whole discussion with an article in the paper a little bit uh, back, uh, has been joining us here on WQXR, along with BBC Music Magazine Deputy Editor Jeremy Pound and Ben Finan, Editor-in-Chief of Listen Magazine. I'm Jeff Spurgeon, sitting in today for Naomi Lewin. Brian Wise is our producer, and we thank you all for listening.